0: Welcome to Craftsmanship, a podcast discussing technical skill in the contemporary art world told through the oral history of fabricators. My name is Harriet Salmon. I independently produce this series as a free resource and as a record of the last 20 years of fabricators' experiences. Who are fabricators? A fabricator is someone hired to assist in the production of an artwork. Unlike the traditional artist-apprentice relationship that could contain an element of mentorship, a fabricator provides a technical skill to an artist as a paid service. Fabricators can be found in foundries, dark rooms, woodshops, and laboratories in roles ranging from master printmaker to studio assistant. They are part of an unseen mechanism of the contemporary art world and their skills produce objects essential to the global art economy, a market currently estimated to generate over $60 billion in annual sales. With scholars and institutions meticulously documenting the intentions of artists, who is recording the stories of these craftspeople? This podcast will document fabricators' experiences to shine a light on the amazing breadth of talent in the field and to capture this particular moment in the art world. I'm interested in conversations about hierarchies within craft versus concept, questions of intellectual property, trends of de-skilling in the art world, wealth disparity, and the conflict felt by many fabricators between working in art production and being artists in their own right. I'm talking today with Matt Quinn, an artist and fabricator living and working in Brooklyn. Matt has a BFA from the Lyme Academy College of Fine Arts and an MFA in Sculpture from Pratt. Specializing in mold making and casting, he's worked for artists such as Paul McCarthy, Richard Jackson, Rachel Harrison, Matthew Day Jackson, and Carol Beauvais. I met Matt in 2007 at KB Projects, a mold making and fabrication studio owned by Konstantin Bojanoff, based in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. We worked together for many years and have remained friends since. He currently is the studio manager and fabricator for the artist Will Ryman. Hi, Matt. What do you tell family members you do when they don't have any understanding of fabrication?
1: I explain to them that I'm like in Elvis's band. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> like if I were to describe it to like one of my uncles or aunts at Thanksgiving, I would say, it's more than being a studio musician, right? Being a multi-instrumentalist. What I would say was Elvis comes in with like a four chord song on an acoustic guitar and we're sitting there with his album in front of us. And I could say on this track, I played rhythm guitar. On this track, I did backing vocals. The last three songs, I did the uh, string arrangements Mm -hmm. and I also am a... Recording technician. Yeah. And then their next question is invariably, well, do you get credit?
0: Yes. And what the do you is, say to that?
1: I say, no, I go to a lot of parties. <laughs> 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 and that I think, at least in my current situation, uh, it's one of the things I'm lucky for is that I get introduced as a human being at those parties.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I think that that's a pitfall of working as an assistant.
0: That some artists. Don't introduce you or that?
1: Yes. That there's an expectation that you would, or I, or you, would remain in the shadow.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, as if it's some kind of dirty secret. Mm-hmm. Or at least it's something that someone with uh, a boss with less confidence, maybe.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, whereas my current situation, um, I could say I'm actively grateful for the fact that, like, I am introduced as an artist.
0: Something I think is super interesting is that what fabricators do gives them front row seats to a kind of view of the art world that not many people have. And on top of that, for the most part, most fabricators have MFAs or are trained in art or like abstract thinking and discussion, so they're incredibly perceptive, interested in talking about the meaning of doing things and stuck in the middle of a playpen.
1: (laughs) Yes, it's romper room. But I also think that being able to speak in different registers helps. And I also think that I've had to come to terms with how much of... what I do and how I think has to be hidden all the time. Like people don't
0: know.
1: I think you have a pretty good idea of like how round of a character I am. But I think if you were like, it's like the five guys in a room with an elephant, they're all blind and they're all touching a different part of it, <laughs> describing something else. Yeah. If like you had five different people to talk about who I was. I think a lot of people would be shocked.
0: Can you talk a little bit about becoming a fabricator and how it felt to start at KB projects in 2007 as a young artist, um, having just moved to New York.
1: Yeah, I think that that whole thing was really overwhelming, and that's probably the only job I've ever... I don't know if it's the only one. It's definitely the last time I ever responded to an ad on Craigslist for a job. I quickly realized that the, that, that the pool of people that I was competing with was pretty large, and that the odds of me getting that job were probably smaller than me getting into grad school in the first place.
0: Yeah, I mean, from, from I remember put, um, working at KP Projects and that job posting was put on Craigslist and it asked for uh, artists who were technically savvy who had experience with mold making. I think, it, I think if I remember right, it mentioned the word fabrication, but it was pretty vague. Um, but it was a decently paying position and we got an overwhelming response to it
1: yeah when I showed up, I was fairly shocked. I know I keep repeating overwhelmed um, but I think that the that the that the free fall that you experience leaving graduate school, and really, I woke up one day and I was like, Oh my God, I live in New York, you know it was it was not none of this was like safe or easy or fun, really, yeah. but you make it that way by by force, and so Uh, What I can say, though, was that when I walked in, the first person that I met was Georgi Pavlov and Nick Gillis. You you weren't there that day.
0: you still work with Nick?
1: Yep. Nick's around. Yes. And Nick and I are still very good friends. (laughs) Georgi lives in Bulgaria again. And I could, again, kind of cross reference every story that I have for you against Georgi as well. Um, And I'd love to talk about that guy because... He probably had more of an influence on how I got to where I am now than I realized at the time. Technically? In, in all kinds of ways. Yeah. And there's like some magic moments that he just happened to be there for where he rescued my ass or pulled me out of the lineup and said, no, this is going to happen. And I didn't know that at the time. And I even now question whether or not he did. But um, there's a lot of things that I have now because Yurgi literally handed them to me. Um, and that I wouldn't have known if he had, if he had done it on purpose, like even that job. So um, so and to describe Yurgi is funny because he looks like a like a sort of a Boris Vallejo kind of like bad guy, like or a um, a Ralph Bakshi elf warrior dude with a top knot. and long braided goatee,
0: right? Two braids or one,
1: I forget. I was both, I'm sure. And, you know, like, gruff, barely spoke, handmade tattoos. He and his buddies used to steal car batteries out of abandoned Bulgarian vehicles so that they could melt down the lead to make spikes to put on their leather jackets. Right? (laughs) So... He greets me with a cigarette hanging out of his mouth. He's like, may I have a look? Because you know, yeah. I'm standing there with my portfolio. The day I yeah. showed up.
0: No, I remember he used to flip up his respirator to smoke <laughs> in the studio. And I'd be like, "Yorgy." <laughs>
1: <laughs> and yeah, so he, so he shows up. And I'm sort of terrified because I was like, well, I'm about to get a real job.
0: Um, do you see yourself being a fabricator I mean it's a, that's a, for a long time. I, that's a hard question because I feel like uh, of course everyone would not do their day job if their own work like came to fruition and provided financial security, but Right. Like do you feel trapped by the skills that you have because you don't feel like there's many other places you can take them or do you enjoy this role?
1: I have at times felt trapped by the skill set. However, I have worked really hard to make sure that I put myself in a position that I can enjoy what I do. And I have, through some kind of luck and through quite a bit of painful kind of sacrifices or like odd moves or just circumstance, found myself lucky to have kind of built a situation where I have the best of all those worlds. Like I still have to work really hard, but I don't get mad about it. Mm -hmm. And that if I am frustrated, I do have some kind of agency to, 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 to put it back and say, look, I don't think this is going to work or you need to trust me. Or like, is there another way or how long does this, can we really or can we wait or can this take a little bit longer or can we and that I think is more of a professional relationship that I didn't think I was going to develop it's an adult relationship
0: what about this role is satisfying to you um both personally and professionally um being a fabricator what what kind of things um stand out as being rewarding
1: there's something about this place that knowing that we play in the big leagues, knowing that there is no other level, knowing that what we're doing or having gone to the armory shows in 2009 and 10 or whichever and being like, I've dropped nearly all of this stuff on the floor at some point. Yeah. And feeling like even if my mom doesn't care, that I know that at least I'm involved in something, That that that, 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 that there is no... Other thing, or there is no other level, you know what I mean it's like it's like yeah. a, at least
0: I remember a wonderful hitting my head on the roof a wonderful mm-hmm. moment at the Richard Prince retrospective at the Guggenheim when we worked on the white tire planter that was in the lobby of um, very sweetly he invited the whole studio to the opening of mm-hmm. going into the opening and seeing the piece in the Guggenheim lobby and knowing that like two weeks before I had been sitting inside the piece with my coffee on the edge of it. Tea, because I don't drink coffee. um, Drilling out the air bubbles with a Dremel and filling them with a syringe. Like the physical familiarity with the object that was now so rarefied Mm. was like a deeply rewarding secret. I was like, I know that object with my body. Yep. In a way that felt good.
1: Yep. And that's addictive, I'm sure. That, that, that at least sends some chemical signal of happiness through my brain.
0: It's like the ultimate inside joke on, like, a visceral level to me.
1: Yeah, it is, maybe that has something to do with it being, like, a complete insider. Like, inside-outer. Like, like, me and Mark Schubert inside the Nara sculpture that was on Park Avenue with angle grinders cutting steel apart in the space the size of a refrigerator, and it was two six-foot guys, like crawling through the dirt. It was the day after, like, the um, Hurricane Irene. I remember it was Uh a beautiful day. Which
0: sculpture was it? The the
1: Yoshitomo Nara sculpture, the big white ghost that was Uh up in front of um, the Japan Society. No, it's not Japan Society. It's um, Asian Society, but by the armory Mm -hmm. up there. Um, But at a certain point, the armature for the head, as it got lowered on, as I watched it blot out the sun, as it came down, that didn't fit. And so then yeah, it's me and Mark inside with a battery powered angle grinder or whatever, like cutting apart the steel with the sparks and the fucking fiberglass that was in there. And really it was in like it was us hanging out in that box. I mean, think about the crazy things that you do and then thinking about that insider stuff and then seeing pictures of that on the news or uh, friends of mine going, oh, I was in a cab the other day and watching the thing with New York One and I'm sure it's you running around the flowers out there. And, or people that I knew sending me stuff like that, that those little sustaining moments, I think get from piece to piece.
0: I mean, I've heard a lot of fabricators say when they're working on their own practice that it's hard not to become your own fabricator.
1: Yeah. I realized I was my own fabricator probably after two or three months there.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. I was like, wait, wait. I could just hand my sketchbook to anybody that works here, and I would get the same artwork. Yeah. Like, that was a moment.
0: Do you think it's the same artwork, though? Or do you think even in fabrication, there's, like, a, a all the tiny decisions that are made when you're fabricating something, there's, like, a personality that translates when something's made?
1: Oh, there's a personality that translates. I could probably... Okay, so if you if you handed me and five others of us at the time one mold and had us cast it if you cut that mold open and i was able to look at the inside i could tell you who did it yeah but that doesn't mean that
0: um i feel like i could tell from people's keys of a mold alone
1: (laughs) oh well yeah definitely if i were to look at the mold i could tell you who made the mold for sure but i mean who made the cast yeah you know so for all outward appearances if something's sitting at the armory show i wouldn't be able to tell you one way or the other from a distance which one of us did it but i would be able to tell you from a technique point of view, Mm -hmm. if you cut it in half, looked inside, I could tell you, um, from
0: the layers of the cast. Yeah. Or just the,
1: just, just the general attitude towards the materials that went into it. Um, that, that, that sort of, um, that's a unique fingerprint I think that everybody kind of has, um, for better, for for better, for worse.
0: Yeah. How do you feel that fits into kind of the core interaction of fabrication? Like, um, do you think that makes some people better fabricators? Do you think that makes artists nervous? Like, how do you how do you think that kind of plays into the bigger?
1: I think it makes every artist nervous, and I, rightfully so. I think that it, from the point of view of being an artist, I would be terrified to hand my work off to somebody else as well. I have a feeling that no matter what I do in the future, I'll be taking care of just about all of it.
0: Yeah. I mean, this might sound like a dumb question, but why do you think artists do it then? I mean, it would make me nervous, too. So in your experience, when you're kind of meeting with artists or working closely with one over a long period of time, like, is it just logistics that they're doing it for?
1: I wonder if it's a negotiation or some sort of calculus about how much bandwidth you're willing to give away to learning how to do something new when it's already hard enough to be an established artist and maintain a kind of relationship with the gallerist or, or your market yeah. or your ideas. And that it, it's, it's a leap but it might be a necessary one because at a certain point, like if you, have, if, you're, if, you, if you have, especially if you have family, there really is only a certain amount of time to devote to new things. And if you're trying to make new work all the time, like you it, it invariably have to be able to delegate authority over how it gets done. And yeah. I think that learning new stuff, is it's kind of a luxury for artists who are busting their ass just trying to hold their position in the art world. Yeah.
0: You... That
1: is something that I have to be cognizant of and have a respect for.
0: You um, <clears throat> mentioned a really great quote by Matthew Day Jackson when we were talking the other night about having to make something
1: new. Oh, that's one of my favorite quotes ever, uh, or insights. And I have to give Matt credit for far more than the amount of fingers I have and toes to count the pearls of wisdom that just kind of fall out of his mouth. Uh, But one of them was about teenage vampires and contemporary art in the market needing to be a teenage vampire, meaning that it needs to be fresh, it needs to be beautiful, and it needs to be edgy, and it still needs to last forever and never change. And therein lies way more than one paradox.
0: How do you view each new project when it comes in?
1: Every single project that I have done as an opportunity to learn something new, which is how I haven't gotten burned out.
0: Yeah, and I mean, at this point, the new things that you're learning is like project management because you're even subcontracting to another fabricator in Denver.
1: Correct. And training other professionals is a new experience for me. But even still, the, um, what's going on around us is a kind of a combination of things I know how to do kind of in my sleep that are almost relaxing because they're predictable and at Mm -hmm. the same time taking those and constantly going one step further. And if the project requires that it's something that I know by rote in a way, Mm -hmm. then the way to keep that interesting is to do it better, do it faster, do it slicker. Like what are the
0: things that are like autopilot for you?
1: Making a box mold of a relief. Yeah. Right, so the question about that is how quickly can we make the boxes? How universal can we make the boxes? Can we reuse them? Can we, f- and how?
0: It's like an efficiency you- game in your head. Yeah,
1: exactly. And yeah. so at a certain point you're like, oh, how quickly can we calculate how much rubber we're gonna need and how close can we get it right to the top yeah. of this box mold? And is that worth a high five? And if so, let's make coffee and let's do it. And if that saves us three hours, great. And if not, well, we tried. And <laughs> <laughs> it's still gonna work, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's, I know how. I know how this is supposed to go, and it's like I maybe have saved like a dollar twenty-five, but it's yeah. still.
0: So even when there aren't problems to solve, you're like creating challenges. To well, I create yes in yeah. that,
1: but I think that that's a global phenomenon in my life. I think that that's how I live in the world. I mean, I don't that's think
0: how that, what artists do in yeah, my mind. Right,
1: um, and if you're not, and it's, if it's not as 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 an artist, then it's like I'll just go free climb side of a mountain or whatever. But it's. The, the idea of living outside your comfort zone. I heard an idea once that people who perform or solve higher-level math or theoretical equations actually get a dopamine shot when they balance an equation. That makes sense. And that they literally are hardwired to enjoy doing higher level math, like in the in the, in the way that we eat chocolate or have sex or gamble, yeah. right? So the math is literally cocaine. But if you hand me a mold and I cast it and I open it up and I demold a perfect positive, it's like Fucking Christmas. It's and I, yeah. that that to me is 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 an addictive thing, and I come back to do that, mm-hmm. and I actually can endure hours and hours and hours of labor that's essentially plotting into the darkness with the idea that if I do it right. And I use what I know, and I follow my own advice that the payoff will be a product like opening a gift. Yeah. And I don't know how, and and, and I can't expect that anybody else that would do this job would feel that way, but I happen to. And And, I capitalize on that.
0: I mean, I think that there's something interesting. I've been thinking... kind of with the discussion around this podcast about fabrication over the last mm-hmm. 20 years like what digital fabrication has done to the field but also just like what the digital world in general has done to work life and I think there in from my experience there's something really interesting about focus mm-hmm. when you're fabricating because you're not um, most of the time you're not hooked into a computer unless you happen to be a digital fabricator. Mm-hmm. But the kind of skills required to learn, um, to have that kind of learning where you're like plodding along in the dark until you have that one moment where you open the gift and it's perfect, mm-hmm. requires a kind of focus that I don't find in very many other work environments personally.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I didn't know that I had that. Like that wasn't something I, I could have said, oh, I, as a kid, I did, it was like none of that. It's all bullshit. If I were to tell you that I found out that that was something that I could do, that would be more accurate. I also think that I found out that I don't panic. Um, If you have 200 gallons worth of rubber that's leaking on the top of a scaffold somewhere, you should call me because I am the person that you want to help you then because I don't lose my nerve in those cases.
0: Yeah. That's a very good attribute as a fabricator. But I didn't
1: know that I had that until it came up repeatedly or you're on the middle of the sidewalk at 2 a.m. trying not to strip a thread on Park Avenue in the snow with four tractor trailers worth of stuff and a $40,000 road closure permit and everyone's standing around being like, Matt, what do we do next? Yeah. And someone standing over your shoulder going, hear the crosswalk beep for people who are blind. And imagine that that's the heart rate monitor of you remaining calm in a hospital. <laughs> um, and that kind of moment.
0: Is this the flowers install for yeah. Well, yeah.
1: But that kind of moment taught me something I didn't know about myself. Mm-hmm. And if, by, by, by doing that repeatedly over the last 10 years, Um, It sort of picks up steam and that, I don't know, is that brain chemistry? That's something to get addicted to. There has to be some incentive that is internal that causes you to want to do things in the right way. And that's an existential question. That's like, why would you do anything right given that everything is complete nonsense? right? You complain about the art world, you complain about the world, you complain about, like, why would I want to bring a kid into this world? Anything. It's why, 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 why. But But the truth is, is like, you do things right for the sake of doing things right, at a certain point.
0: Yes. Also, I think the contemporary art world fabrication situation, per the last 20 years, requires, demands the most unforgiving teenage vampire ever. So not only do you have to demand it of yourself, but you have to be okay with a professional situation that doesn't have relaxed deadlines, or like it not working has to be, uh, if you try to solve this problem of this thing never being made before and it doesn't work, you're there, you're doing switch shifts all night, making it into something that can be there on the floor of the museum for the opening. Like, That's right. There's a r- demanding, rigid um, situation where you, it, c- it goes both ways, so the like perfectionism.
1: Right, but I also have a respect for, <sighs> I have a respect for not only how things are made well, but that even if I think that on any given day the art world is complete bullshit and that whatever collector that's getting something is picking it up for the wrong reason, what I do know is that if I'm making something that's worth the cost of a brand new Range Rover, that I should make it look like a brand new Range Rover. (laughs) I don't think, whether or not I think that anyone's intentions are real or even if the concept of the work is lousy, the money is real. Yeah, And I also know that it's a business and that if I'm going to remain employed, I need to be an asset to someone and that that means that I need to take the work seriously.
0: So I am trying to ask um, every fabricator that I speak to in these interviews the same question. And I know it's a little bit simple, but I'm hoping that it gives... um, a real window into the range of skill that fabricators have. Uh, so what is your favorite tool? Angle grinder. Why?
1: With a shingle sander flap wheel on it. You can get a lot more done with that than anything else. I'm imagining that paired with some short strand bondo
0: subtractive additive.
1: combo. Yep. Pair those two things, strength, um, flexibility in the additive process but in the end short strand mono can actually function like a bunch of different materials
0: mm-hmm.
1: and the angle grinder by itself slightly dulled <laughs> and a small one the little Metabo one or the little Bosch one far more flexible than you'd give it credit for especially because I have decent wrists. So, using that one-handed. On a desert island, that would be what I'd pick. Spirit animal is an otter or a monkey, depending on how you order the totem.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: They switch places, but that answers your question. Okay,
0: okay, (laughs) I think we're done. Thank you so much, Matt, for chatting with me for the Craftsmanship Podcast. And thank you to your dog, Ricky Sacroball, who sat somewhat quietly throughout the interview. A final credit to Bryce Arizabaglia Quintet for supplying our theme song called Mount Fuji. And please check in at www.craftsmanshippodcast.com for future episodes.